All right, welcome again, everyone. And I totally agree with Pastor John that having to come up after those testimonies and after that baptism is a tough act to follow. I was absolutely slayed by what they said. So powerful. May it be that God will move us to a time where we have baptisms every Sunday. Amen. Because God is bringing in the harvest and there's such a sense of God in the air and God in the city and the joy of the Lord just being in our midst. That was such a characteristic of the early church. So I'm going to share my Easter message. I'm going to try to make it uh, short and sweet. I'm going to (coughs) read, in addition to the passage that I read at the start of the service from Matthew 28, just a a few verses here (coughs) in chapter 27, where the scripture describes that after the Lord had died, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tomb and after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, truly, this is the Son of God. Lord, that's our confession this morning. You are the Son of God. Lord, we stand back and we see all that's happened, and you've given us undeniable evidence, God, of the power of the resurrection and what you did on earth. This morning as we just look into your word, Holy Spirit, Come and anoint us as listeners. Anoint me as a speaker. We thank you for your word in Jesus' name. Amen. So the focus of my message this morning is that key phrase there from verse 51 where the Bible talks about the veil being torn in the temple from top to bottom. Now, for those of you that were here at our Good Friday service, Pastor John talked about how this is a massive veil. Uh, It wasn't a thin, push-aside fabric just hanging over an entrance. Uh, This was a huge theater-like curtain in terms of size and weight. Uh, To give you just a little sense, this is a depiction of the priest when he was in the temple and the scale and the scope of this curtain in comparison to who he was. It was a sound baffle. It was a light baffle. Cut out all the acoustics and the light. It was 60 feet tall by 30 feet wide. Now, the Bible doesn't actually say how thick this curtain was or how much it weighed. But Talmudic scholars, uh, rabbis from the Old Testament, have speculated that this curtain was four to five inches thick, and being so big and strong, and rabbis like to exaggerate, they said if two horses were pulling in opposite direction, they could not pull this curtain apart. Tradition says it took more than 80 seamstresses six months to make one of these veils because it was so big and so intricate, and took 300 priests to handle it, soak it, and to clean it. So man could not have torn this veil. It's not like a soccer player tearing his shirt when he scores a goal or a strong man tearing apart a telephone book. Only God could have torn it from top to bottom. So the question is, why did he do that? Well, to answer this question, I want to consider the veil from three perspectives. One is life before the veil was torn. Two, the veil itself. And three, life after the veil was torn. Let's begin with the veil itself. Hebrews 10.20 tells us that the veil is actually a picture 
of Jesus himself. In that verse from Hebrews, the writer says that Jesus inaugurated for us a new and living way through the veil, which is his flesh. We don't have time to unpack just that part of it, but just to say this veil that was torn is a picture of Jesus himself. He was the one that was split in two. A couple weeks ago, I shared about the lament of God and how God draws us into a place where we can share our deepest pains and hurts. And in Psalm chapter 102, verse 24, King David captured something that was in the heart of Jesus as he was going through this torture and dying. He said, oh my God, do not take me away in the midst of my days or in the middle of my days. Well, in another part of Psalms, chapter 90, the scripture says that God gives man 70 years and if he really stretches it out, 80 years. So the halfway point of man is 35 years old. And so when Jesus was saying this, he was literally saying, don't take me away in the midst of my days, which is half my life, and that's exactly the age in which Jesus died. He was split, the curtain was split down the middle. Isaiah 52, 14, the prophet said that his appearance, referring to Jesus, was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of man. So Isaiah saw prophetically by the Spirit that there would be the Son of Man, the Son of God, that would be so tortured that he would be beaten beyond just what is imaginable. And so this spoke of his, of his death by crucifixion and how horrible a death it was. A second thing about this veil is we see that Jesus is the divider between the holy place and the holy of holies. So this might be new terminology. What are we referring to? So here's a couple pictures for us. The temple <coughs> was a great edifice, and this was the interior structure, and there was two inner rooms. One was called the holy place, and one was called the holy of holies. And there was a veil right here that divided the two big rooms. And so the scripture is pointing out to us that Jesus himself is the veil. Here's a picture of how big that is. This actually was a standing structure in Jerusalem. You go to Jerusalem today, you can see the site where this was. However, on this site is actually the Dome of the Rock. And we don't have time to go into it. But I will tell you some incredible biblical history and, and fact. On this site where the temple is, that's where Abraham sacrificed, offered up his son Isaac as a sacrifice to God. It's also the place where Jesus was crucified. So that's why this whole area in Jerusalem is considered sacred and holy ground. This side is, you can't see this wall right here. This is the eastern part. On the back side, that's the western wall. So when you hear on the news the western wall, it's the Jews praying on the back side of this because it was so close to the temple. So within this structure, the scripture says the veil was there, and Jesus, in fact, is the divider between the holy place and the holy of holies. The Lord said... In John chapter 10, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus is the true door, the real doorway. Everyone else's door leads to trouble and heartache. In some ways, the stories that we heard from Max and Elsie, we're knocking on different doors. What's going to give me happiness? What's going to give me peace? 
we go through those doors and we test them, we find out that the promise of happiness is not what it really seems to be. Jesus is the only one that can give life and give it abundantly. Another thing that we see about this veil, there were three colors that were sewn into it. <coughs> Second Chronicles chapter 3, verse 14 tells us that the veil was made of violet, purple, crimson, made of fine linen, and the workmen worked a cherubim into it, which we're going to touch on in a moment, cherubim being an angel. So the color blue is the color of heaven. This is a picture of Jesus being the Son of God. Peter said in his great confession, you are the Son of the living God. And when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, the dove came, the voice out of heaven came and said, this is my beloved Son. Purple is the color of royalty. Jesus is the King of Kings. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem for his final week, the scripture says, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Red, of course, is the color of sacrifice, and Jesus is the Lamb of God. The apostle John, when he saw Jesus coming, said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Another detail that we see about this veil is that it was described as being made of fine linen. And this speaks of Jesus' righteousness. In Revelations, it says that at the marriage feast of the Supper of the Lamb, the righteous acts of the saints was pictured by the fine linen. And so Jesus, of course, being the captain of our faith, is one that is clothed with fine linen. So we see this veil that was torn was not just this thing that happened by accident. It was actually a very powerful prophetic picture that he himself is the veil. So let's talk about what life is like before the veil is torn. Life before the veil was rent is about justice, and life after the veil is torn is about mercy. Justice and mercy are two big dueling ideas in life. Justice is about the law. Justice is about what someone deserves. Justice is what keeps order in society, order in family, order in company. If there are no rules, chaos reigns. If there are no consequences, chaos reigns. Justice is good and necessary because it mitigates and prevents bad behavior. If someone steals, they should be punished. If someone murders a person, they should go to jail. Someone lies, they should be called out and exposed and called to account. Regarding the veil, Second Chronicles says that there was a cherubim that was worked into it. When's the first time that cherubims are mentioned in the Bible? In Genesis chapter 3, it says, After Adam and Eve had sinned and were banned from the Garden of Eden, God drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim in the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. So the cherubim were placed there to prevent the return of the sinful couple into paradise. For Adam and Eve, there was no return to happy fellowship with God. The creator's relationship with man was broken. Justice demanded that they be separated. So the cherub in the veil represents the dividing wall of justice. You can't go in. 
You have to stay out. Now, on the other end of justice is mercy. Mercy is receiving unexpected kindness in the face of bad things that we've done. We throw a ball by accident into a neighbor's window. We break it. The neighbor says, that's okay. You don't need to pay for it. We borrow money from somebody, and when we can't pay it back, the lender says, you don't have to repay it, even though it was a $25,000 loan. We cheated on our spouse not once, not twice, but three times. And our spouse still forgives us instead of divorcing us. Mercy is an incredible thing. It's either a reduction in what we deserve or the outright cancellation of our sentence. Mercy is a powerful interaction, is a, is a very powerful interaction, but we have to remember that mercy is only sweet because there is justice. If we take justice out of mercy, we disfigure and do violence to mercy and its beauty. Unfortunately, we're moving towards a society that is so high on mercy, no one even knows what justice is anymore. We let people off the hook so much that they just continue in their wicked ways. There's little to no consequences. Little slap on the wrist, little slap here, little slap there, shoo-shoo, off you go. Oh, little Tommy, you're acting like a little devil today. But that's okay. Here's another popsicle. You want a cookie? Mommy and Daddy loves you. When we administer mercy before justice, we, in fact, shrink the human soul. We diminish a person's capacity to be a full human being. We are not helping them. We're enabling them. We're not just spoiling them. We actually are causing rot in their soul. The soul needs righteousness. The soul needs boundaries. The soul needs to know where the, that there's going to be pain and judgment and condemnation if you don't act properly. We need the Ten Commandments. We need the laws of God. We need a God that meets out due and corresponding consequences when we do wrong. Without justice, our souls become rank. But here's the thing. Justice isn't God's endgame. His endgame is mercy, which is incredible because justice doesn't need mercy. Justice is complete without mercy. The law is the law. You do wrong, you deserve punishment. What is there to debate? It's black and white. So God doesn't need to add anything to justice. Justice is a beautiful system all by itself. But in fact, God does add something to the system. He adds mercy. And he adds mercy because he cares about relationships, that life is not just about right and wrong. And that's what the cross is about. The cross is about the justice and judgment of God administered to one person even though Jesus didn't do it. Is that fair? Would you want to be punished for someone else's wrongdoing that you did not commit? Let's say one of you were speeding, and I'm the judge, and I take away another person, I take away your license instead of that person's license. How would you feel? To add insult to 
insult to injury as a judge, I purge his record. He never broke any speeding limits, but that ticket now is on your record. Is that unfair? Absolutely it's unfair. But that's exactly what God did when he crucified Jesus. He turned our sins into Jesus' punishment. God poured out justice on Jesus so he could offer mercy to us. Which brings us to our third point. With the veil being rent, what do you see when you go in to the Holy of Holies? There's no barrier anymore. You get to go in. And what is it that you're going to see? You would be in a room completely bedecked in gold. It's the only material in the room. And get this little detail. Even the nails were made of gold. It's crazy. Everything, through and through, speaking of the glory of God, the very nature, even the hidden parts were made of gold. That's how glorious your God is. But the Bible says the most important part of the room is not just the, the gold color, it's what was in the middle of the room, which is called the mercy seat. You see that right here in this picture. First Chronicles 28, verse 11, the scripture says that David gave to his son Solomon the plan of the porch of the temple, its buildings, its storehouses, its upper rooms, its inner rooms, and the room for the mercy seat. It doesn't say the holy of holies for the mercy seat. No, what it's calling out is the most important feature of this room is the mercy seat. The whole purpose of the holy of holies is to be a place where the mercy seat can be. Mercy is God's end game. Now, before the veil was torn, only once a year would the high priest go in and offer incense and blood upon the Ark of the Covenant. So you see right here in his hand, got an incense, and he's offering it on here, and there would be the smoke that would go up in the room. That smoke would be a pleasing smell to God. He would also have, which you can't see down here, a basin of blood. And he would take that blood, and he would sprinkle it right here on this altar. After all that was completed, the Shekinah glory of God would manifest. This is not a... 3D animation here. This is literally, this is not CGI. This is literally the glory of God. He would come into the room and fill it with light. God would not, not allow any natural light in the Holy of Holies. The curtain left it completely dark because he said the only light that will be in this room will be my glory. And so as the high priest finished his regulations, the glory of God would manifest, and then this is what it says. In the King James, it says the oracle would speak. This is not in any of the modern versions, not the NIV, not even in the NASB or the ESV. In the King James, it says the oracle begins to speak. This is such a powerful picture of what mercy is all about. It's to bring us back to a place where our relationship with God is restored. The sheep and the shepherd are reconnected. The sheep gets to hear the voice of the shepherd. John 10, my sheep will hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they'll never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. By the way, let me just say something about eternal security. We get saved by the grace of God. 
It's not because of your works. It's because of the grace of God. Therefore, you cannot work your way out of your salvation. If you have truly given your heart to God, no one can snatch you out of the hand of God. You are secure in the hand of God. Don't think that you can commit some sin that's so far gone that somehow it's done. You are secure in God because you're saved by grace and you're preserved by grace. So God speaks. We have a relationship that is restored, the sheep and the shepherd. We have a prophetic God, a God that leads us and guides us and protects us, gives us wisdom, imparts discernment, right? Part of our journey and part of our coming to faith is the confusion that we're wading through. But the picture here shows us that when the veil is rent, we get to fellowship with a God that will speak, that will guide, that will direct. He's not a mute God. Part of the ways that the Israelites terrorized the pagans in the Old Testament was they would make fun of the idols that were made of wood and metal. Your idols don't speak, but my God speaks. He leads us through the wilderness. He provides manna. He gives us water. Does your idol do that? Do your aspirations do that? Do the things that you put your heart in do that? The oracle right there over the mercy seat. This is, in fact, the greatest outcome of the new covenant. We could talk about this whole passage from the covenantal perspective, which we don't have time. But this is the new covenant. This is, this is the new paradigm. And the most practical outcome of this new covenant is you get to have a person-to-person -person relationship with God. We get to hear his voice and walk with him. I was thinking about the point of that great hymn, In the Garden, by Charles Austin Mills. I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses and the voices I hear falling on my ear the Son of God discloses. I mean, how many people know this chorus? And he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own and the joy we share as we tarry there None other has ever known. He speaks and the sound of his voice is so sweet, the birds hush their singing. The melody that he gave to them within my heart is ringing. I'd stay in the garden with him. And it goes back into that chorus. But I love this hymn. I love how it captures that call from heaven, that call from God to walk with him, to talk with him, to fellowship with him. This whole picture of the garden is us being transported back to the Garden of Eden. Remember the cherub that kept Adam and Eve out? Look at this scene now. Here are the cherubs. They're actually celebrating that the fellowship between God and man is now restored. This is the point of mercy, to have fellowship again, to talk again, to be in communion with him. When that veil came down, we get to see God and experience him. Many of us feel like God is so far away that in fact he's like hidden behind a veil. But no more, the way is open to him. And so we had the cherub that was on the dividing wall of justice, but we find them now right there in the mercy seat, rejoicing over the restored relationship. Where two or more are gathered, there I am in the midst. This was a prophetic sign. 
signifying community and communion with God at the mercy seat. Friends, life after the veil is torn represents mercy triumphing over judgment. God's big reveal was this. When the curtain came down, it wasn't the judgment seat behind the veil. It was the mercy seat. God knows how to shake things up. He knows how to surprise. The disciples thought that their dream was over and that Jesus was dead. But God flipped the story on its head. Yes, my son went into the grave, but it can't hold him down. Death cannot hold him down. Sin cannot hold him down. Satan cannot hold him down. Nothing because mercy triumphs over judgment, over sin, over any difficulty that we walk through in life. That's how much God loves us by sending the Son to the cross. Mercy is so powerful that it shakes the earth and splits the rock. Right here. Mercy can shake the most confident of us, even stout Germans, and split even the hardest of heads, the hardest of hearts. Remember when Jesus was born and the angels sang to the shepherds in the field and the stars led the wise men to Jesus? That was just the trailer. This is the finale. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That was his mission. The Bible says that God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God does not wish that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. And it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. So the mercy of God brings us to the doorstep of the kingdom, but he won't make you cross over. Only you can make that choice. Only you can step into the Holy of Holies. That's your decision to make. Are you going to stay outside the curtain, or are you going to go in? I want to invite you this morning to make Jesus your king your Savior, and your friend. There is no one that loves you like Jesus, and he proved it by dying on the cross, rising again, and tearing down the dividing wall. Let's pray. Father, we look to you this morning. We thank you for your great, great mercy. You could have easily just left it in place and said, I'm going to be the judge. I'm going to execute justice, but Lord, you brought mercy to us instead. You sent Jesus to die on the cross, to die for our sins. Lord, that you might make a way for every single one of us to enjoy fellowship with you again, for the confusion to lift, for the heaviness to lift, for the sorrows to be washed away, for your healing power, for the kingdom power to come and enter our lives. And this morning, if you've been feeling that tug from the Holy Spirit, if you know that God has been working in your life and you, look, you can look back, as you heard this morning, of the different ways in which his invisible hand has been drawing you, then I invite you to give your life to Jesus. Why wait? Why not make this your Easter day? So Holy Spirit, have your way. And I'm going to pray this prayer. And if you want to become a Christian today, just say this quietly and pray after me. Dear Jesus, I give my life to you this morning. Thank you that you died on the cross for me.
Thank you for your mercy that saves me. I surrender my heart to you. Come into my life and take control. If you prayed that prayer, you have crossed over into the Holy of Holies. You've crossed over into that place where you can have an everyday relationship with God. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for what you did at the cross. In Jesus' name, we bless you. Amen.